Welcome everyone to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Hello, still Allison. I'm. Thank you for joining me for an evening <laughs> of mailbag as requested yes. by some listeners. I've just popped a polar seltzer. I'm on a living spree right now. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Can I actually start out with a shout out? Please. So if you remember from Justin DeKelly, the famous blockbuster flop, this message won't be like that, but it is from Tori to Addie. So I don't know. It felt like it had similar cadence. Addie is turning 30 this year. Oh my gosh. Happy birthday, Addie. I won't give out personal intel, but she's turning 30 right towards the end of this year, not long after this episode comes out, and they are sisters who grew up with American Girl. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. Was it high pressure that one of you's named for an American Girl, but one of you's named for Tori Amos? So one of them is spelled differently, but they grew up with American Girl, did the American Girl Club. Addie, shout out to you. She found the podcast first and sent it to Tori. They love talking about it. And I think most important of all, besides her birthday, she's a cat person. Oh, that's a that's a good sign. We love that for you. So we kind of wanted to open with that because we love when we get to give people, you know, special messages. And 30 is a big deal. And I'll just say this, Addie, like 30 was a good year. Like, I think people underestimate 30. Yes. You know, your Saturn's return is mostly done. Whatever upheaval has happened is hopefully like resulted in some good changes for you. You're happy. But for me, 30 was a year where I was like, I no longer care what anyone thinks, which Mm -hmm. is not like 100% true, but it felt like a turning of a page in a very positive, good way. So I hope it's a great year for you ahead. I hope so too. I also read something which is that 30 to 34 is your test run for your 30s, and your 30s actually start at 34, and I also completely agree with that. Really? Interesting. Well, I mean, you're so you're at year one. I am, yes. I'm in so year it's like two. zero. You're your zero year. I'm in my one year, <laughs> I guess. Yes, yes. I think that could be true. I think that could be true. So Tori and Addie are big podcast fans generally. We are going to be taking some of your questions, going through sort of systematically. And for whatever reason, we've decided to do this where I just mercilessly lob questions at you. I've never seen these questions. So (laughs) if my answers sound unprepared, I don't know why we do it this way, but we've just committed to always (laughs) doing it this way. And you know, it, it, it adds some excitement to the proceedings, you might say. So maybe. I don't know. I have my polar. I'm ready to do this. You know, I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but I'm excited to be here. So we begin with a question from Just the Italian who wants to know, which dolls would be really into podcasts if alive today? My gut instinct is to say Molly because mm-hmm. I do think, and this is not something I'm proud of, but I do think as we've discussed on the show that you know, she would be listening to any and all Fox News podcast content. And I'm scared about that. I hope I'm wrong. But I do think someone who grew up in a radio culture is predisposed Mm. to understand podcasting. I think Addie A-D-D-Y has her own podcast, but doesn't need to listen because she's too busy. I think Kirsten loves audiobooks. I think that's right. I think Kirsten loves audiobooks, and I think she likes to listen to them as she goes walking in the woods, and it's sort of like her self-care spiritual practice. And basically, Felicity listens to podcasts that are mainly about horse breeding and horse horse sales, horse trading, the industry. It's real insider stuff where they're like, we don't care if we get 50 listeners. (laughs) It just has to be the right 50. And she's someone who's listening in her car only, and she's screaming at the speakers, even though she understands they can't actually hear her. I agree with that. So someone wanted to know, and I think this is such a huge question and they don't actually sponsor us. So I think we'll narrow it down to a few. Life What a Concept, who I have to say always comes through with very good questions, wanted to know what each girl's Duncan order is. Oh my God. And instead of going through them all systematically, I'm going to arbitrarily and unfairly ask you to just do the orders of Felicity, Samantha, and Emily. And you can throw one back at me that you don't want to do. 
I think you should start because I this is like <laughs> such a mind blowing question. There's so many options. I really need to think about this. I think I will just say off the dome that I do believe Samantha's order would be like choosing a TikTok influencer's order, yes. like Charlie D'Amelio. She'd be like, I will take the Charlie D'Amelio. She would order it that way. And, you know, I think she would be thinking like, I'm supporting a woman in my community. Like she would frame it as like, I'm doing some kind of charitable act, but it also affords her the cachet of like seeming like she's on trend and on fashion, which I believe is also in her character. And that's not a slam. I think that that's just something that she would care about. I think Caroline never gets over the austerity era of living through the Napoleonic Wars and War of 1812. Mm. And I think she becomes a Starbies woman, like a woman who says Starbies and who asks the barista what their favorite drink is. And it's like, has so much like caramel and whipped cream i think felicity never drinks tea again and has like a vendetta against tivana i think that when she goes into dunkin donuts she gets one of those frozen hot chocolates and like nobody understands her (laughs) i think she gets one of the (laughs) pre-bottled iced coffees that they have in the coolers inexplicably because you can get a fresh iced coffee right there yeah. And she just slides it across the counter and they're like, you know, we could get you fresh coffee, like just brewed. And she's like, nope, I don't want, I no. She just puts a hand up and is like, no, like I, I will have, no. I won't explain how I know this. I feel like she and Molly are the kind of people who don't hand cashiers money. They put it down on the counter. Yep. And I think when a penny comes back as change, Felicity flies absolutely off the handle and storms out the door. I think Emily only ever actually goes to McDonald's and gets a large hot tea, but she has to put the tea bag in herself. I think that that's, I think that that's right. Or she goes to McDonald's, gets a hot water. Yes. Opens up her purse, pulls out tea that she's brought herself. Yeah. Because it's important for people there to see that it's not okay for her to get like a (laughs) Nestle's tea. And I feel like, and I don't again know how I know this, but I feel like Molly like shows up at a Dunkin', creates a community around herself. Like she creates a commotion (laughs) around herself by, you know, like lobbing some charged opinions about like something in pop culture, politics, what have you, and starts like swearing to stuff (laughs) as evidence that's true, that it it is from nowhere where she's like, guys, you weren't there at Pearl Harbor when this happened. And people were like, you're quoting Ben Affleck from the movie Pearl Harbor. (laughs) That was never said. And she's like, how dare you? And like, maybe like munchkins are thrown. That's what I, that's the energy that she brings to Dunkin'. So I walk to my Dunkin' on my days off and I get a special drink. This is something that I do. And I really wanted a hot tea a few weeks ago. So I walked to my Dunkin' on my main street, my literal main street, which had recently undergone renovation, which was upsetting. And I walk in and you have to understand that everything about me when I'm on, remember when there was that thing of like hot girl walks? This is like the opposite of that. I wear a fanny pack. I wear a sweatshirt. I have my headphones in. Everything about my demeanor says, do not speak to me. I've already pre-ordered on the app. I want to walk in and walk out. They changed the entire configuration of this Dunkin' Donuts, which thankfully is not my drive-through Dunkin' Donuts. And this man comes up behind me and he goes... This is so upsetting. The fluorescent lighting is so terrible on my skin, and they've gotten rid of the parlor. Sir. Parlor? (laughs) They used to have a seating area, which has since been reconfigured. And I'm like, sir. This is a Dunkin'. We're in a pandemic. This is not a Wendy's. And then I had to go back to my bike path. But all of this is to say... Akon617 wants to know which dolls are whose and which dolls are thems. Ooh, that's a that's a big one. I think all of the original five get automatic them status. Okay. To me. What about Josefina? Yes, she's okay. a them. Okay. Certain other people, it's like situational. True. Like, you know, I think Molly to me is a forever them. There is no scenario in which Molly to me is a who. But it's it's easy to think about how some others might get in that situation. I think part of the challenge with Josefina is people consistently like misspell her name or like mm-hmm. misidentify her in some way. I will say this. I think that Caroline is generally a who, but within the fandom, 
kind of has this really interesting elite status where almost everything associated with her is incredibly expensive and rare, and yet you don't see people talking about her. I think I think that that's true. I also think to circle back to Josefina, she thinks she's a who, but she's a them. And right. that's the crisis of her right. character. And I also think for the person you really ride or die for, you're convinced that everyone thinks that they're a who and you're the only one who understands their themness. Like, I'm just going to call out their Kirstens for a hot sec because I hear from Kirstens a lot. In the best possible way, they're all really amazing people, but they all come from a place of like, you don't understand. And it's not me specifically, but they're like, people don't get it. Kirsten's to them and people don't understand. And it's like, I feel like we have given her that status. So I asked, you know, the class, essentially, I put up a quick Instagram post, like wanting to know what coverage has been folks' favorite so far, like not, not their favorite character, but like the coverage. And I will tell you, it was fascinating because it was completely divided. Like when I tell you when I scrolled down, so close to 3,000 people looked at that post and a good number engaged with the post. When I scrolled down, it was like Felicity, Molly, Addie, Kirsten, Josefina. Like there was no pattern. More of you said Caroline than I actually would have guessed. I think because it's top of mind. If it was a contest, Addie probably would have won. I also think people find those episodes people have been finding those episodes in recent months and that was early pandemic when we couldn't fathom it lasting through april 2020 and i think that that has a particular (laughs) right like moment right now but yeah i Um, also think of supporting characters if we just need to check in for a second it's like there are certain people where i'm like gut check i know this is real like ben is a who i'm not gonna take questions on that miss mannerly is a them (laughs) Uncle Guard is a them. Cornelia is a who, but I would love them status for her. She's just not there yet. Um, Because a lot of her action happened in short stories, not in the main books, and that's not on her. But I'm just saying. Like Nan is a who. Nan is a who. Unfortunately, Nan is a who. Mrs. Ford, kind of a them. Kind of a them. Sarah, definitely a them. Allison, Allison of Molly, Molly's sort of frenemy is a who, unfortunately. Nellie, I would say, is like the the themiest who, because I think outside of like tight fandom, you don't know who she is, but to fans, you absolutely know. Well, in the factory, she's a who, in the attic, she's a them. (laughs) That's how that breaks down. You know what I'm saying? Uncle Guard to most women is a who, but Mm -hmm. to a lot of men (laughs) and to a lot of cars is a them. So... Again, it's all situational to me. We we have talked about this before, but it, in case you're not familiar with this kind of categorization, and I would say like in much the same way that Darwin changed the way that we think about the organization oh, wow. of species and sure. evolution. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay and Bobby are two podcasters and they run Who Weekly where they break down who's and them's. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most important and ultimately least divisive ways of categorizing of our time. Yes. Well, you know, the Enlightenment gave us the encyclopedia <laughs> in many ways, or it further developed the encyclopedia as a way of organizing knowledge into systems that we for which we use the word science, but, you know, they have given us something truly beautiful in the 21st century, <laughs> and, and it is helpful, and I do use it often. Now, if you had hopes for a 1920s doll, this is from Crazy Doll Collector, who does amazing content on Instagram. Be sure to follow them. What would those hopes be for a 1920s character? Well, I mean, I have our conversation with Lily fresh in my mind, where she said her most desired character was a Harlem Renaissance doll and i do think that that would be really interesting i think having like a planned parenthood like someone whose mom works at a planned parenthood would be interesting because i would like a 1920s story in which the mom is like trading equal parts in like the importance of access to birth control which i see Mm -hmm. as a net positive but also involvement in eugenics ideas which is obviously not a positive and like a girl trying to live in that home and navigate that it would almost certainly end in disaster and not go well like as an exercise but i do think it would be really interesting to think about how that decade could be different than like thinking about like a roaring 20s Mm. or like the ways that we speak about that decade broadly in historical terms like how could we ground that how would it look different from the perspective of a nine-year-old girl i don't know that's just sort of interesting what about you 
I think situating someone in rural America would be really interesting, like Mm -hmm. kind of a place where the depression has hit sort of early or like a place that's like early, early 20th century post-industrial. I think that also like part of like what I've been interested in before this is the 1920s and into the 1930s are really this hugely important moment in higher education for like temporary expansion of access. And I think based on what we've been living through, a child who grew up like in the very early years of COVID, but then is still kind of seeing the shadow of it, like having a parent who grew up around people who got polio and lived with polio. I think something that is not being like talked about enough is you might get COVID and be a long hauler and or you might get COVID and have effects from the virus in a decade. And I think a story that would kind of connect us to that, but in a rural environment where people think differently about community than in a city, I think would be really interesting. Yeah, I think like a March of Dimes story would be interesting. Like someone who's involved in the March of Dimes and polio. And like, I'm really interested in the shift of like, what is the, what does it mean for the poster child of polio to go from FDR to March of Dimes children? Yeah. Like in marches literally organized by like moms in suburbs, which themselves are changing and evolving in the, this would be later than the twenties, but still, um, that would be interesting. I would love also like an early aviation story of like a girl who has access to aviation. I love like thinking about women in the twenties who are like doing like, you know, they're learning how to fly and flying these routes, like either doing like postal routes or like doing competitions, flight competitions. I would love like a girl who lives in like Florida or somewhere random that we have not covered in the books. But Mm. some I love like thinking about that kind of theme. I've mentioned that my older brother is a pilot and he loves to tease me about Amelia. I love to tease him about Amelia Earhart where I'll be like, (laughs) she was so important. Like she was a pathbreaker. Like she had her own clothing line. She did all these different things. And literally he'll listen to this entire diatribe and then be like, and she was bad at her job, period. I'm like, Rick, stop. Like a woman died. And he's like, she didn't need to. She didn't like do her job. And I'm like, this is not to like create controversy. Like he's a very kind person, but um I do think that like she's the one of the few women pilots people think of in that era and there are actually like many and that would be an interesting story. I would just also love to situate someone because we've been reading these stories with really wonderful grandparent connections. I would Mm. love a girl who is situated at, say, a historically black college or a place sort of like a black Wall Street. Obviously, like if you were to do Tulsa, that would be a different story. But someone who kind of grows up on a college campus that is a, a part of a reconstruction era project and kind of experiencing this whole other world I think that would be really cool and again just like getting us away from the kind of like flapper stuff like the white flapper what Um, about what about like a woman speaking of a grandmother story like someone who's at a historically black college in the 20s wants to be a doctor her grandmother went to a medical school before the Flexner report shut a lot of black medical colleges down and specifically but like how crazy would that be to be like I thought I could do this thing my grandmother did and now I can't. So it's actually like not a narrative of progress, but someone who's like actually combating a challenge to progress. Like, I think that would be really fascinating too. I love that. And like situating someone who's like born 1910, maybe she could be also like Samantha's child. Oh my God. Too soon. Too soon. soon. Um, This is a simple yes or a no. Alice Fury wants to know if AG has ever reached out to us about a collab. This is a sad answer. (laughs) No. Stony Clover also did not invite us to their launch. That's okay. Um, A lot of you were upset about that on our behalf and that was very kind of you. Um, I don't know what we've done wrong. It's like, I don't, I have not given this a lot of thought. I think we would be very open to a collaboration, but yes. I wonder if there's some kind of dissonance or a disconnect about what it means to love something in a way where you love it by speaking honestly about it and, you know, sharing criticism that comes from a place of admiration or like holding something to account could be a way of showing your love for it in addition to saying positive things about it. But 
So I don't know if that's the issue. I have really no idea. Molecular Violin is um, an optimist and wants to know what we would suggest if American Girl reached out to us to help celebrate their next big anniversary, which I love. Molecular is like, I want this for you. And Alice wants the tea on like why we weren't invited <laughs> to the tea party. <laughs> there are different instincts. Um, yes. Hmm. Do you have thoughts about this? I'm putting my thoughts together. You know, I keep thinking of the scene in A League of Their Own where the women kind of reunite. Oh, my God. And part of me is torn, right? Like, part of me didn't ever think that this thing that I loved when I was eight would be a part of my adult life the way that it is. But I think what's really fascinating is there is there is the culture of American girl that we grew up with. And then there is this culture of American girl that we cultivated together. And now that we get to share and build with other people. And I think if we had nostalgia for something, it would be for that, for being like 30 something or however old you are listening to this women who did something they just enjoyed. And I think that would be kind of the difference. To be honest with you, I I don't necessarily mind that we have that distance from the brand because we're not their spokespeople. Like we love it. And I think something really special about what we've gotten to do is at some point people will get to read kind of the insights we've gotten from talking to people all over the fandom. People tell us things because we don't work for the corporation. So that's yes. that's kind of where I land. I think for me, meaningful commemoration has to start at a place of community. And yeah. as you're saying, that doesn't necessarily require the brand's involvement, or I think it would change things if the brand was directly involved. There's um, a style of conference that unfortunately no longer exists, but I think we've both been to it where it's called that, it used to be called That Camp. Yes. And the way that it worked is people would show up the morning of, there would be no, um, panels or like people wouldn't apply to give a paper in advance and come and just read their paper. You would show up and literally write on a wall like I want to talk about this thing like I'm have I need help solving this problem with like technologically or I want to talk about this topic with someone who's also interested. And then basically those would get narrowed down and they would be like, OK, everyone who wants to talk about this thing, go in that room. You guys can all hang out and talk about this thing you all care about whatever. And it was like very free form. Like some people would like teach other people how to do different things. My ideal commemoration would be a version of that. Like to, to basically have a community get together where there would be no like strict hierarchy. Like we would not be at the top, but we would all share space together. We would find a way to have people kind of articulate what they want to talk about and then create spaces where people could have those conversations and form like connections that could carry them beyond that event. So because to me, like otherwise, like the way we grew up with the brand was like reading the catalog at home. It wasn't necessarily mm. something I used to connect to other people, but that's what it is for me now. And I think that's what I would want my commemoration to be about. I would also say like, I think part of the more or like one of the most gratifying things that has kind of come out of it. So like we have listeners who connected over someone who lost a lot of their belongings in a recent natural disaster. And this other listener said like, what, what was she missing and like sent her a Josefina. I mm. think some kind of like global exchange of recognizing that these things really do matter to people, but also getting them in children's hands. I think there's yes. the collector impulse. And as much as I like absolutely love the things that I own, part of the pleasure is knowing that I could also give them to someone else and that they could enjoy them. And so I think kind of that next generation piece I was at a, a small museum about dollhouses and the woman said like you would not believe how many people call me because they've inherited their mother or their grandmother's stuff and it means nothing to them so i think mm. something that kind of did like cross-generational pollination of like there are so many young girls who would love that dollhouse it doesn't really belong in a museum like that kind of matching i think is very special yeah, definitely. That would be really cool, too. So we also got asked, like, I love the way that this person phrased it, sarcastic book nerd. They wanted us to speak on the shadow retirements that have happened with American Girl. And I think this is very apropos because of the treatment of Caroline. Yeah, so let's go through some of the ones that have been shadow retired. So obviously Caroline, who else mm -hmm. is on our list? 
So the people that we're covering next, this also answers another question. We are covering Cecile and Marie Grace, and they were uh, two of the dolls to have the quickest turnaround, like right back into the vault, unfortunately. Yeah, I would love to know what went on with those decisions. Like, is it purely a sales conversation? And is there an internal conversation in the brand that's like, okay, we need to do a better job of like making specifically like privileged white girls care about people who don't look like Mm. them and is there any sort of like owning of like well we this is a failure on our part and with someone like caroline like she is a privileged white girl so i'm not really sure what happened because those books are good her outfits are interesting is it really the hair like we've heard rumors about that is it really because of the hair i don't know I also think one 18-inch doll is not going to turn the tide of people have almost never cared about the War of 1812, and I think she was up against that, whereas World War II obviously has this whole kind of other piece to it. I do think actually more than the shadow retirements, and I think this is a great question, what bothers me more is the reconfiguration of the books. I think the physical rebranding toward the Be Forever moment is what it is. What actually really kind of bugs me is there is something, and I know things have to change. It's a brand. It's not a library. It's not a public utility. There was something so special about making your way through six like good sized books Mm -hmm. and feeling that sense of accomplishment. And I was reflecting on the size of those books, the feeling of pride I would have when I finished them. And I'm always struck when we do these episodes or we agreed to do like a Dear America. In my mind, these books were like $100 because they were so special to me. And then even now we'll make plans to do a show And I'll be able to, you know, I'm very lucky, go on and buy these books for $2 or $5 or $8. And it's like this amazing privilege still, but also in my mind, they were priceless. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I remember, and I still treat those books like they are precious. Like the the container that they all come in, that they perfectly fit into, the way they look on my shelf, all of these things that are purely aesthetic that have a certain thrill, a certain creature comfort. I look at those books and I love them. I love the profile of the Pleasant Company, like the magenta, all of it. Um, Yeah, so I think that's an important piece. And I also think like not to pivot from your original question, but I think it suggests this question, which is not only about the shadow retirements, but what about the dolls that never left the research department? So Mm -hmm. in other words, we know from talking to people who worked at American Girl that the most secure lockdown piece of the factory is the research and development area, which is not a shock. But we also know that they have developed so many dolls with different stories and historical situations that never get released. And so it's like, are we ever going to get inside that vault? Because I want to know what stories they wanted to tell, but were prevented from telling for God knows what reason. I also think, so someone tweeted, and it was a very lovely tweet. It said, the way that the American Girl podcast has taught me more about history than my American public school education. And I think, like, imagine if so much wasn't riding on this multi-billion dollar corporation, Mm -hmm. right? Like, imagine if there wasn't so much of a need. Like, we want this corporation on some level to tell these other stories because we fear that people are not going to get it otherwise, Mm -hmm. which I think is very telling. Sad, but yeah, it is very telling. So Alyssa was way ahead of the curve, and she asked a question that we have now been asked many more times, and people will be very pleased to know that we are addressing it. She wants to know, thoughts on Pleasant Rollins Spa in upstate New York? Wow. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this. (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts about this. So a lot of you sent us this article, which we appreciate you doing. I have not been to Aurora, but I love that there's a bumper sticker that folks sell there that says, you know, <laughs> we were um, we were pleasant before pleasant or something. Like Aurora was pleasant before, I think is what yeah. it says. And, you know, we actually get into this in the book that we're writing, so I don't want to like reveal too much of this, but something pleasant is both inspired by other rich people to found the company in the way that she does and to tell history stories the way that she does. But it's interesting that unintentionally her retirement has also taken the shape of some of those same people who influenced her, which is that 
you know, she's creating her own like utopian vision of what yes. she thinks the past looks like. Is that to say I wouldn't go to that spa? No. Like no. if they want to gift us a stay, <laughs> like we'll be there tomorrow. Like I don't understand much of the treatments on offer, but I'll be there in a heartbeat. Yeah, in Wells College, which she has a very close relationship to, which is located in Aurora, I'm not going to say that a college is proud of her, but there is a lot of local pride associated with this woman who sort of like made it big and and had all of this success. I think part of what's really fascinating, too, is the way that very wealthy women make decisions about how to spend their fortune and the way that very wealthy men make decisions about how to spend their fortune. They do tend to be different decisions and they're talked about very differently. I can imagine that there's a lot about the way that she has flaunted or spent her wealth or changed that town that people find distasteful and problematic. I would also say, you know, like, this isn't at least a Jeffrey Epstein situation, right? Right. Like, there are far more horrific ways to re-engineer a landscape and control people of wealth. Um, I have been up to that part of the country. I visited Wells College um, years ago as part of a separate research interest, and I really thought the area was so gorgeous. Mm. I did some cursory looks at what it costs to stay up there. Um, We would need basically like everyone in our home states to become patrons to bankroll a week there. (laughs) So I'm not really sure that that's... No, I'm joking. Like there are affordable ways to see it. We're hot off the presses of a Vanderbilt discussion. I think the longer term thing is also this question of what will her legacy be? Because I actually think it's just not this at all. I think this is like a very small piece of it. And I try to think of it in terms of like the net in a way that like Rockefeller is not actually really remembered for his re-engineering of historic landscapes. Like very few of these people are. I don't think this will actually ever be a huge part of her legacy. In a sense, I actually think that this is like her version of a hobby. And like you're you're saying her legacy would be completely different because I think something else that's a piece of this is that Pleasant um, has not had children of her own. So in a sense, like her wealth will not be generational in the sense that a lot of traditionally rich people plan to pass their wealth along and all this kind of stuff. I think from what we know of her, she's bankrolled a ton of philanthropic stuff Mm -hmm. in the Madison area. She's funded hospitals in major ways, cultural organizations, museums. But I think her legacy will always be American Girl, no matter what Mm -hmm. else she does. And I think for her, this is like, in a sense, her American Girl, like creating her own American Girl, like playset and accessories if she was the American Girl, because Wells was a really meaningful place for her. And I think this is her version of like a thank you or like enshrining it so that it lasts her, the version that lives in her head would last some Mm. amount of time. Now, of course, doing this without the consent of the people who actually live there, like the majority of them has created some tension and is perhaps not what everyone has in mind. It's sort of like if you have like a rich relative and they're like, I want to do something really special for you. And they don't ask you what you want, but they like (laughs) buy you something expensive that you don't care about. It's like, you know, I imagine like maybe that's what it feels like. I don't know. I don't have like rich relatives, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's very strange. I do want to like, I'm curious about that place that looks beautiful, but I don't know. Like, we'll have to see. I want to know what she's, what else she has planned for Aurora. So I have a question. So you go there and you're, you know, like sipping your Caroline-ish or your Starbies drink and you run into sure. her on the sidewalk. What do you say? Oh my God. Oh my God. I've actually thought a lot about this. Have you really? Yes, I have. Because like this in a way, this is like my greatest fear in life is that I would run into someone I actually am really interested in and really admire. Like I love Dolly Parton. I love her. I love Paul McCartney. I love him. Like it's a long time thing with the two of them my whole life. If I, if you said to me right now, like, hey, Merry Christmas, like Dolly Parton's going to come to your door in five minutes, I would self-destruct. Like, I don't (laughs) think I would actually make it through that conversation because it's too much for me. Like, I think I would never rise to the occasion enough. I Mm. think she absolutely would and be everything I expect and more. With Pleasant, I think it could be a similar situation. I sort of don't know if she's someone who gets thanked all the time to the point that I'm sure she does get thanked all the time for everything that she's done. 
And I'm sure that she's gracious, but if she was like having a bad day or something, it was like, uh, like, I don't want to go there right now. I don't know that how I would handle that. Like, would you want to meet her right now if I was like, she's in the next room? Absolutely. Yeah, I would. Really? No, I would. Yeah, I would. Oh my God. And what would you say to her? I think I honestly would like leave it at a sentence and I would just say, Molly changed my life. Thank you so much. Okay. I mean, I feel like I could say that to her, but it's like, I just want to write her a letter. I think I would cry though. I would want to write her a letter. Okay. No. No, see, I'm not writing her a letter because I'm not giving it to a handler. I think if I serendipitously ran into her. Now, I will not say it. There are certain like elements, like high level elements that if we did run into them, we would have to hide. Like who, Val? Stop. Don't say it. <laughs> don't say it on the air. See, I Why? would be. Oh, God, would that's be never going to happen. No, Because I we're be so out of pocket. But we said a lot I, of things. I really do admire kind of certain aspects of this, right? And I have had pleasant experiences, like truly no pun intended, with meeting certain other people. So I, I think I, I would say that. I also think you run the risk of, of course, you know, like Sting doesn't want to perform every breath you take anymore. But I also think many very famous and very wealthy people do have the grace to say, like, this is what people want. Yeah. I mean, right now my mind is going to that time we saw Billy Joel for 10 bucks. Yeah. And people had the chance to, like, ask him questions about music. Like, that's why he was there. I don't know why we were there in in light of that, but... (laughs) And so people got up on the mic. They could ask him anything in the world. And all of them, literally an entire two-hour nightfall, were like, can I hug you? Yeah. And I was like, this yeah. is the most painful thing I've ever seen. It was like, he clearly didn't want to do it. I sort of yeah. understand that. I think, you know, so I think I would meet the moment in a more appropriate way. And I would probably say thank you and something complimentary. But I would also be afraid. Yeah. And I don't, okay. I can't explain that. This is a complete pivot, and we don't have to combine these two questions. You don't have to be wearing this if and when you meet Pleasant. But Lily wants to know, what era has your favorite fashion? (sighs) That's difficult for me. I'm going to say 50s, but I don't want to wear a poodle skirt. I'm I'm talking about, like, I'm showing up in jeans. I love saddle shoes. I don't have black and white ones, but I have like the leather and navy blue ones that I do wear to work quite a bit. And, you know, like a nice sweater. Um, Okay. You know, like I love wearing denim on denim. I'm not afraid to do that. So as you know, um, so I'm going to say that it's it's not maybe an impressive answer, but it is the truth of my experience. What about you? I'm going full 1650s. I knew you were going to bring up something like that. <laughs> Please explain. I really truly believe that like I am not built for mass produced clothing, not because I think I'm special, but I think coming from my short and stocky and idiosyncratic lineage, I just should have custom clothing, but I don't have the wealth to make that possible. I really love 17th century English style dress. I also would very comfortably dress in early 19th century style clothing. I would love to have a better relationship with the fibers and the fabrics that go on my body every day. And I think I would just look really good. Okay. I respect that. (laughs) I think you want it because you want to wear external pockets. I think that's what it really comes down to. I want external pockets. I want to wear a long skirt every day. I I would happily wear a long skirt every day if it wouldn't make people have certain questions about me that I would then have to answer. I would just like to wear it. Along these same lines, she loves the color pink, wants to know what you think the most underrated national historic site is. I'm going to give two answers. One Mm. is um, I think Orchard House as a house museum is not appreciated for what it actually is, which is there's a really great article in a history of house museums that was published by the Smithsonian about 10 years ago. And they have a great chapter about the origins of the of Orchard House that describes how it's actually a battlefield for suffragists and anti-suffragists in Concord and in the Boston area and how they um, presented Louisa May Alcott's life, like whether or not they chose to 
um, depict the house as a really happy family domestic scene. So mm. kind of showing how women are essential to the family. Or if they made it about um, Louise May Alcott's life itself and how she was a professional woman who ended up having to support her family in a very non-traditional way that was empowering. So for suffragists, that was meaningful. So I think like a site that allows you to tell multiple stories in that kind of way is interesting. Um, but my number one answer is going to be a shaker site. I just don't know which one I want to pick. Um, all of them. I, I really, I'm a huge shaker person. So I think things that make you rethink what like a nation is or nationalism mm -hmm. or utopia or how we're in community with each other or what binds a community together. I don't know. I just, I love thinking about that. What about you? I think Oneida is like really underappreciated mm. in, in those same lines. It was an intentional community of people who, unlike the Shakers, like they did embrace sexual relationships and like procreating. So my answer, and believe it or not, even though I picked these questions, I try not to think about them too far in advance to not have like too much of an unfair advantage. As you were talking, I kind of changed my answer, and I feel like cemeteries are our most underappreciated mm. historical resource and genealogical resource. And I have to say, like, I've yet to be bored in a cemetery. I, I really love pretty much all the cemeteries that I spend time in, as long as they are safe to be spending time there. And I think even in places where there's a lot of dense historical sites, such as Boston, Massachusetts, the cemeteries are so important. Mm. I would also say of all the places I've pretty much ever visited, I would say like two in the United States are underinterpreted as opposed to underrated. Um, one would be the site of the Great Swamp Massacre in Rhode Island, which was part of King Philip's War, and that property was recently returned to local indigenous people who claim that as part of their homeland, and I think it's a really important site to understand American genocide, and historically mm. it was not interpreted that way by most uh, colonists and descendants. I would say it's not underrated, but it should be visited by every American, is the Whitney Plantation. It's about an hour's drive. Uh, I could be wrong, but about an hour's drive outside of New Orleans, and they're considered a premier establishment for interpreting slavery. Gosh, I'm giving a lot of answers. Um, high on my bucket list right now is Reconstruction National Historic Site. Hmm. Um, it's a newer addition to the National Park Service. I'm really impressed with everything that they do, and I feel like not enough people know what Reconstruction was or that it's not finished. So those those would be like kind of a spectrum. And I would also recommend the book How the Word Gets Passed because mm. it takes, I think Whitney is a chapter in that book, but it also kind of takes on really well-known historical sites, but encourages you to see them from perhaps a different perspective than you um, were taught um, to think about them, like Monticello and Mount Vernon and some others, like to see them as a site of genocide and not like this is where Thomas Jefferson was like tinkering with inventions and things like that, which is kind of how it was interpreted for a long time. Um, it's a really, um, really well-written book and, and really interesting. So definitely check that out. We also had someone ask us to rank a top historic site in every single state. I have been to oh 43 God. of the 50 United States. I will have to think about that for a little while, but I also love that as a challenge. And thank you for wow. thinking so highly of us that we have 50 ideas. Kate wants to know what Christmas movies we are watching this year. Okay, I was just talking about this with Anna before, so I'm trying to like think re regroup here. <laughs> I think on the Discord, we're trying to set a time to watch Muppet Christmas Carol, which is one of my all-time favorites. I'm a huge Muppets fan. My all-time favorite Christmas movie is White Christmas because I'm a mm. huge Rosemary Clooney fan. Um, there are not there are problematic elements of this film as there are of mostly anything made before, I don't know, 2020 or like things still made now, which is not to excuse it, but just to say like, I'm not here for a lot of like the weirdness of that movie. I don't like the choreography number. I know that's controversial. <laughs> Rosemary Clooney is like a 10 to me. I love her music. Um, I am interested in her life history. So, and I just love that movie. Like it has a very sentimental place in my heart. I watched Home Alone for the first time in many years to like last week. 
And it was a shock to me, Allison. I've had that experience. I've had that experience as well. I like, I was like, oh my God, like compared to things that like my cousin's kids are watching now as kids, it's like, it's so like off the wall, like this would not get made now, but you know, that was, is it like a secession, like prequel (laughs) in some ways for the Culkins? Like, I don't know. It's extremely um, violent. It's like like relentlessly violent was my yes. relentlessly opinion. relentlessly violent. The final two I'll say I haven't watched this yet, but I taped Hallmark made its first Christmas movie with a lesbian character, which I've taped oh. and I've not seen. It's three sisters, one of whom is queer, and that one gets like the traditional Christmas love story arc. So I've not seen it. TikTok told me it exists. I taped it. Haven't watched <laughs> it. Watched single all the way. My oh boy. Uh, my older brother is also gay, and he basically sent me an unrelenting stream of screenshots, like almost <laughs> as if I was watching it in real time with him, which just to be clear, I was not. I was living my life doing something completely different, but this is how older siblings are. It's like, we're all going to be doing this now. So we watched <laughs> it like the next night or something later. And all I'll say is it is not like I found it to be sweet in the sense that like if you're a queer person, you know, the struggle, like there's so few good movies out there with queer representation that we end up watching stuff that's trash. The leads don't have a ton of chemistry to me. Like I didn't read them as having chemistry. And the main guy from um, Ugly Betty is like not necessarily who Mm -hmm. I would have cast. However, and this is the reason to watch the movie and you can watch a clip of just this scene on YouTube because I've like I'm obsessed with it. Jennifer Coolidge plays the main characters on. She is the best thing about this movie. At one point, she's organizing the Christmas nativity play in town. She's like yelling at these children throughout the movie where she's like, how dare you speak to me? I'm a professional. How dare you speak to me? <laughs> they're cut to a scene where he's like, I'm going to help you. She's up there with scripts and they all, they're all, all the kids are reading from their scripts, which is by the way, insane. And she's like, are you reading? Are you reading from your script? I told you we all had to be off book today. That's it. I'm doing everyone's lines. And then she does in a minute 20, the entire nativity play, everyone's characters. (laughs) It's amazing. It's the best thing. But what are your favorite Christmas movies? I watched Love Hard, which was good. It was funny. Um, like favorite of all time, watching White Christmas is obligatory in my family. It is not a choice. It is something that will happen whether you want it to happen or not. Like it will happen for my family in the next few days. This Thanksgiving, we rewatched all of the Little House on the Prairie Christmas specials in a row, which is something my mother owns on a DVD. Okay. She's also been mainlining the original Lizzie Borden movie as well as the Karen Carpenter wow. story. So this is like the range of what we watch. It does not matter if anyone is interested. It does not matter if anyone is watching. Sure. Those will play on a loop. Absolutely. Love Actually is always my top Christmas movie. I don't think you ever top that. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um I find Christmas movies kind of tough. Like, I need them to be deliberately bad or I need them to be actually good movies or I have a hard time. Like, I enjoyed The Christmas Prince. I like those kinds of things. For me, like, I'm saving Succession as my Christmas present to myself. So what that says about me, I don't know. But I know that a lot's going on. I will say this. One of the better things to happen to me, I'm just going to say this year, was that profile of Jeremy Strong. In what way? Like, how did you read it? I couldn't have loved it more. I I could not Are have you, enjoyed like, that him? more. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. So I also think what people fail to recognize is, like, it's literally called acting. <laughs> like, yes. it's literally acting. But I think I think we want these people to be these range of other people, which has its own kind of like potential pathologies wrapped up in it. And we want them to be these accessible persons. Like the fact that Jeremy, I call him Jer, you know, whatever. Um, You're close, whatever. The fact that he almost bankrupted a historical theatrical institution while he was at Yale, I find fascinating. I really love portraits of raw ambition. And that's what I really liked about that piece. And I think something I took away from it is we don't often get to see, like, the backside of a man who is trying that hard. I think that's a characteristic that we see in portraits of women who have made themselves. I think with him, like, that was something that I found really compelling. 
I also don't think Succession is a comedy. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's something where, like, a drama can have comedic moments. I mean... Yeah. And it can be kind of a hybrid. I also think... So, Anne Helen Peterson wrote her newsletter this week about that profile, and she used it as a way to think about celebrity profiles and the state of them today, and basically was like celebrities used to kind of be battling against the press for what kinds of profiles they would get and like how revealing they would be or how laudatory they would be. You know, there are famous ones you can look up, like um, Frank Sinatra has a cold is a really famous one where this, um, I can't remember his name right now, but um, this reporter follows Frank Sinatra and writes this really famous piece about like what he's like as a person. And Frank Sinatra is sort of like trying to press against that because he wants to protect this like veneer about him. And her point is that like now the celebrities basically hold all the cards or that's her argument because they can just hop on Instagram and tell their own story or frame themselves in a particular way. They don't rely on the press to be kind to them or to help position them as like something they're not per se. So she likes the Jeremy Strong profile because it actually isn't critical of him, but it's actually like sort of trying to understand him and depict him in an accurate way that's not just like his publicist saying like you can't ask about this or like you get exactly. a half hour with him like you get a sense of him as a person like for good or for bad or whatever and i think that she's absolutely right and it's sort of like i think part of the reason it went viral is just because people are hungry for more of that like ben affleck a couple of days ago did an interview where he said i can't even like go here because it's so dark to me that he would do this where he was like, I felt trapped in my marriage and sort of puts his alcoholism on Jennifer Garner, which P.S. I think is absolutely disgusting. Like, yeah, alcoholism is a disease and you shouldn't frame it as like a moral judgment on yourself, but certainly not one that's the fault of another person in your life, um, particularly someone who famously drove you to rehab three years after you separated. So like there's that piece. But it would be fascinating if his people like he has so many um mediations between him and the public i wish we could get a profile of him that would not that i actually think something like that would put jeremy strong in relief like that actually yeah. like people are making fun of the fact that he's ambitious what about someone like ben affleck who's a slime ball and is willing to rehabilitate his <laughs> image by so diminishing the mother of his children in ways that are completely unfair anyway i'm just mad about that so our friend brenna wanted to know your dream celebrity memoir. Is it Ben Affleck? Is it someone else? <sighs> wow, this is tough. Um, there's a lot of celebrity memoirs that don't exist that I would read tomorrow. So we just recorded our Vanderbilt episode, for example. Mm -hmm. Angela Lansbury stars as Aww. Gertrude Vanderbilt in a miniseries about the trial over Gloria Vanderbilt's custody. I would love to read an Angela Lansbury memoir. We don't have one. We do have her Murder, She Wrote cookbook. <laughs> we do have her self-actualization, self-love, health video that's on YouTube. And um, Maintenance Phase did a really great episode about it. So you can check that out. But there's a lot of people, I think. the It's sort of like the real, while women said of the Civil War, the real war will never get in the books. It's like the mm. best celebrity memoirs will never be written because the people are too smart to have written them, per se. But I will say that some of the best that do exist, for those who are interested, um, Catherine Hepburn wrote two. They're both amazing. I like people who are both candid and out of pocket. Yeah. Or they're so manipulative of their image in ways that are obvious that it ends up just being interesting to, th to kind of analyze, <laughs> like, what do you think you're doing here? Yeah. Like, what are your answers to this? Who are you looking for? Yeah, I think it's a tough one because the ones I have enjoyed the most have always taken me by surprise. Like, I never would have said that I would have enjoyed a book about Leah Remini. Right. I think the ones that I enjoy the most are people who are mid-tier celebrities. Also, at this point, I am clamoring for any of the sister wives to reveal oh my God. the truth in a book. Christine! I'm ready for Christine. I'm ready for Janelle. I will also say this. like, So I have actually read several of the Duggars books. This is going back now like 10, 15 years ago. And part of it was out of curiosity. I think what has come out about the family and especially most recently the charges against Jana specifically, I think there's a lot that's come out that's already changed people's entire perception of that. I really think an insider's view into the Quiverful movement and the way that they have maintained their status as reality star celebrities, despite the controversy and the literal crimes that apparently now several of them have committed, 
I think that like we have only gotten an eighth of that story. I don't think we are even close to understanding what that story is at all. And I think what's come out in the past few weeks, I think it's so much more horrific than we even know. I think that that's absolutely true. I don't actually know if I could handle reading any books that come out by those people anytime soon because it's like it's so bleak. Like what yeah. has happened in that family is so awful. And I I don't know if I could sit with that. Like to me, when I'm turning to a celebrity memoir, it's because I genuinely love the exercise of someone explaining themselves to me mm-hmm. and being like, well, here's what I think my here's why I think my life is interesting to strangers or like, here's what I think my life was all about. And, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to that question, but it's really just sort of like, I mean, that's why I enjoyed like Taylor Swift's Netflix documentary, even though it was basically like a two hour long promo for her album. It was interesting to see how she wanted to frame herself. So I'm forever interested. It it almost doesn't matter who the celebrity is. I'll truly read anyone's book. What the Fox wanted to know, and I, I think only you can answer this question, is which Taylor's version would you like to see next? Okay, thank you for this question. <laughs> I have been thinking about this quite a bit. I It's difficult because I'm actually just interested in what the timeline is that she has mm. in mind. Because the more time that goes by that she doesn't re-record Taylor Swift, the more nonsensical her re-recording of that album will become. Yeah. Do we really want to hear a 35-year-old person sing about like being stranded on a road as a teenager in Tim McGraw. P.S. I love that song. Like, I don't know. I'm just fascinated. I want to know where this is going. I love 1989. I want that to be next. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's interesting that she's doing it out of order. I would love to know like what her thinking on this is. Hmm. I think maybe she's like, if she was looking at like her most successful albums, you know, I'm not sure if that's what she's done, if that's the order that syncs up with what she's doing. But, you know, I would love to know, like, what the marketing strategy is and how I'm really my most fascinating issue is how is she going to handle Taylor Swift? I think she will absolutely do that one last because she thinks she'll make the least money off of it. But does she handle the dissonance between how she started and where she is now just through life things, totally normal transitions in taste and, and preference mm-hmm. by having more collaborations as she did on Red, where she has like people who didn't originally appear duet with her, like Phoebe Bridgers and others. I don't know. Like, I'm really interested to see what she does. So we'll see. I, I, I wish I had an opinion. I really don't. <laughs> I love 1989. I really yeah. hope it's that one. So we'll see. Yeah. I still haven't listened to the 10 minute version. The, what? The five- Allison. The five is sufficient. I know, like, I'm sorry. I I will pick a few songs once in a great while. Like, I'll hear a song on the radio and I'll be like, gosh, that was a good song. So my iTunes has officially broken 100 songs um, um, total. So... <laughs> excuse I just, me? I okay, just... I was just talking with my friend Abby the other night about this. Hi, Abby, if you're listening, but about how... I miss my iPod classic. Like basically she hit me with the question, like how do you choose between Apple Music and Spotify? And Mm -hmm. I only have Spotify, so I couldn't really help her. But it got us talking about the fact that like this move to straight streaming as opposed to like you owning music on iTunes and putting it on your iPod in my case, I loved my iPod classic. I still have it. You could make all of these playlists that included not only things you bought legally, but things that I downloaded off LimeWire, like weird bootlegs or live recordings that you can't find anywhere else. So you could have those on a playlist of your choice. You, you, It's really hard to do that on Spotify because right. I have so much music that I couldn't have it on my computer anymore because my computer was running so slowly because it was taking all the memory. I have the opposite problem that you had. So now my <laughs> iTunes is on an external hard drive somewhere. I don't really know. It's like somewhere in this hmm. apartment. So I've had to move fully to streaming, but it means like I haven't heard my bootlegs in a long time. If someone can suggest (laughs) a solution to this problem, I'm really anxious to hear it. But yeah, I don't know. That's where I'm at. But I'm happy for you breaking 100. That's exciting. What was the (laughs) what put you over the top? What song did that for you? Oh, this is so embarrassing. No, there's no um, there's no guilty pleasures. There's only pleasures. No, it's not guilt so much as shame, I think, a la Josefina. So. I really like that song about the man who takes his wife on dates to Wendy's and Applebee's Fancy Like by Walker Hayes. There you go. I listened to that song five times this morning. And 
the way I had queued up my Bluetooth, I had to keep pressing play. And I just thought, well, gosh, I'll just listen to it again. You know, like I love a song that's about Frosties. So um, can't go wrong there. When I say I like a song, I'll just listen to it over and over. And I'm like, oh, this song is kind of funny. It's like, you know, they're at the Applebee's. What I love about it is the audacity of him to name Bourbon Street Steak, like the very specific yes. name of the entree, because I know like exactly what I want at a Chili's or at an Applebee's. Like, as you know, I participate in IHOP's happy hour. It's like, I love that level of nuance. This yes. isn't like a country star pretending like they still eat at Applebee's. Like, he knows. And he yes. knows that that is above the usual two for 25 promo. So he's in I, deep. You don't watch the Sunday morning show because if you did, you would know all <laughs> about his story. He was profiled. I'm gonna have to send you the video. I met his whole family. I've been to his house. And basically he was like a down on his luck. He was dropped by his record label. If I'm remembering correctly, he was still trying to write songs and perform. I think he was like trying to get sober. He was newly sober. Mm. And he has like four to five kids or something like that. And like he genuinely eats at Applebee's. Like that is yeah. fancy to him, to his family. Like no shade. I get that. I totally get that. Although I've not been to Applebee's since you and I both went there and got food poisoning before a talk we gave together <laughs> where we also didn't remember that it was going to be a potluck talk. So imagine showing up food sick with food poisoning to a place that smells like a million um, casseroles like that was a long night for me so it's not the fault of applebee's but per se kind of is but um we want like that story they take him to applebee's and he yeah. literally applebee's is like we took this milkshake off the menu but he name checks it in the song so we had to bring it back it was like you know he's in it but i was happy for him so, like, he's an influencer in his own way. People sure. are very curious. We got a lot of different questions um, from Mallory, Morgan, Brenna, people asking different questions about books, best books that we read this year, and especially um, what non-American girl historical fiction books we enjoyed or might recommend. Okay. Um, hold on one second. I got to grab something. You got it. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, so every good. year, instead of a Christmas card, we make a zine. And in the zine, we list books that we really liked. So I grabbed mine. So I can just read off some recommendations here. Allison, you're getting a sneak peek of the cover before it arrives at your house. It's very cute. This The I title like is it. always a pun with Christmas. Can you read what the title is? <laughs> the surprise. All I want for Oh, I shouldn't. Oh, well, I won't you can say it. No, no, no. It's cool. It's going to go out anyway the next day. It's all, all I want for Christmas is you, and there's an owl on it. Um, but I really liked, I just read this book. This is not historical nonfiction, but I'm going to share it anyway. There's a book called The Charm Offensive that is a gay version of The Bachelor written by a high school teacher. It's very good. Um, but I also read Passing, um, How the Word Gets Passed. I read Time mm -hmm. Miles' book, which is excellent. Just won the National Book Award. Um, oh, my God. I got to remember what else I read here. Um Normally, I post more frequently books I really love on Instagram, and I'm trying to get better about that, mainly because it, it's a space where I can instantly go and remember a book that I really want to recommend to someone. So this is sort of on me that I haven't done that enough. Uh, I read a book called um, Linda Berry, who's a great uh, artist, wrote a book called uh, What It Is, and it's sort of about like being creative, and it's really mm. interesting and cool. I highly recommend that. Um, read the history of Grey's Anatomy that's going around. Don't necessarily recommend that. It was sort of disappointing because <laughs> Shonda didn't participate. So it's all like stuff that I've read before that Shonda said. What about you, Allison? What's on the tip of your tongue? So I got lucky when this question came in because I had just made some book recommendations to friends. And so I think one of the more important books I read this year, and it is also like surprisingly funny and very heartfelt, is Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. That, that is a quick read and that is also an important read. A book I very recently read, and I hadn't read Joshua Ferris before, and I know that he's kind of polarizing, like you really like it or you don't, was A Calling for Charlie Barnes, which I loved. I loved that book. It is exceptionally strange. I really, really liked it. I read a book called All Together Now by Matthew Norman. 
I literally picked it up because there was a happy face on the cover and I thought it was going to be a happy book and it's not, but I loved it. Okay. Um, Kate Russo's Superhost is a book that I really, really enjoyed. I loved the pacing of it. A book I just finished a few days ago that honestly blew me away was The Paper Palace. And oh, that's on my is, to read list. Yeah, this is not a plug at all for Reese Witherspoon's book club. I have read oh pretty much like everything, everything I've read that has like her sticker on the front. Only one of those books has let me down. I'll also just say a book that like really, like you, you start to read a lot of the same kinds of books and very few things surprise you. I loved the book How Lucky. And it's a book that based on the cover, I never would have picked up. And I'm glad I mm. got it as book of the month. So um, I'll also say if you're just like in like a silly, goofy mood to quote TikTok, I read the X-Hex, which is like not going to win a Pulitzer <laughs> Prize, uh, but is like a very like if you're going to be in a hot tub or like a tub or I don't know, whatever you need to do. Sure. Um, Mallory is a famous listener to us because we ranted about how one of the American girl's birthdays was the date of a serial killer's, like several serial killer's birthday. Oh, and sure. she gave birth to her child shortly after hearing that episode on that day. Oh my God. That's so thank you. Intense. Beautiful segue there. Morgan, our final question, wants to know who's next. Who's next of the dolls? Didn't we? Who's say? next? Marie, Grace, and Cecile. Cecile. Yeah, so we're also very open to your feedback on how you want us to do this. This is kind of interesting where they came out. They live in the same time period, and so they have both overlapping stories and distinct stories. So people have suggested Marie Grace go first. I think we're open to either or with how we handle all of that, but they are next and they are living in mid-century Louisiana and dealing with uh, disease. So that will be a fun break from reality. Refreshing. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, that will be interesting. Um, I'm always excited to kind of explore as we are now in this point in the show, all of these new stories that are very new to us. So It'll be exciting. And when you tune in to our next episode, we have a very special surprise, which is that we interviewed an American Girl author. Yes. It's the first time we've done this on this show. Hopefully not the last. Hey, Val. Um, Maybe not. Yeah, it was a great conversation, and we're really excited to bring that to you in the new year. Yeah. And Mary, if people want to reach out to you or if they have additional questions that we did not respond to, I tried to get to as many as we could, where should they find you? You can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And Allison, what about you? I'm at Allison Horrocks on all of the things. And you can also reach out to the show. You can start by going to our website, which has our P.O. box. A few people have asked about that recently, as well as our telephone number. On there, you can also find all of our social links, our show notes, all those kinds of things. We are accessible on Instagram, Facebook, and on Twitter at A Girls Pod. Otherwise, we are American Girls Podcast. Can even give our Facebook page some love. I post there once a month, so, you know, keep love it that. pretty thrilling. Love <laughs> that. And I will say that our Patreon community, just as a plug, if anyone out there is looking for a gift to give a friend or even a mm. gift for yourself, it's something that's truly a gift in our lives, like no joke, like this Discord community where you can go and talk to other listeners about any kind of topics. And we create channels for people based on requests. We have channels on so many different things. It's such a positive, affirming community. It's like if you wanted to make a bunch of new, really cool friends, it's a really great place to just hang out, get some affirmation, talk about pop culture stuff, talk about books you're reading. If you're a parent, you can talk to other parents about things that come up. So, I mean, it's it's truly just like a really affirming place. Plus, you get an extra episode a month on things that we find relevant. Yeah. And in the new year, that will start off with Johnny Tremaine. And then we will segue seamlessly into Michelle Kwan's 19, late 1990s memoir. I cannot wait. I know we fall differently on the Michelle Kwan, Tara <laughs> Lipinski divide. I am always here to stand Ambassador Kwan. And I'm very excited about the Winter Olympics. It's unreal. These are happening so quickly, but we will be covering that. And we usually watch, during the Summer Olympics, we watched some competitions together on the Discord and chatted. So, you know, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah. And thank you so much to everyone who supports us there. 
Happy New Year, everyone. Bye. Thank you.